0: Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury, has received a punishment from the NBA for racist and sexist behavior. But many people don't think his punishment went nearly far enough. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me to discuss all that and much more is John Deckersov. And John, how are you doing this week? Chad I'm doing pretty well
1: it's uh it's been a solid week my weekend just finished and it was it was a pretty restful pretty restful weekend honestly we we played some some Apex Legends we watched some some Lord of the Rings I watched a lot of Avatar The Last Airbender this weekend and hung out with some friends and I don't know it was just it was just a good relaxing time um that that all weekends should be so so I'm doing I'm sort of ready to start my work week
0: and also not but it's it's okay how about you? I love that for you. I uh I've had a good week. I am going to a friend's house to watch Tenet tonight, a movie that I have not seen. You haven't seen it. Okay. I've not so I'm excited about that. Gonna be with some friends. We're we're all pretty big Nolan fans, so Mm -hmm. we're excited about this experience. It's one of those movies that just came out at the wrong time for me. You know, it was a covid movie and I was in the middle of a lot of life transitions and just never got around to it. But time to remedy that, so it's gonna happen.
1: Yeah, it's it's worth it's worth seeing. It's odd. I'm interested to hear what what you think about it. Maybe we can maybe we can talk about it on here. But it it's a.
0: Nah, I won't spoil anything. But all but right, it's just it's right. an
1: interesting watch. We'll
0: see yeah, soon. I'm excited. Other than that, John, I'm doing really well. Um, get, September's kind of been a very chill month for us, and then in October we've got a couple trips coming up uh, to the mountains, but mm-hmm. nothing nothing too fancy. Although I guess I will be seeing you in September, which is always a joy as well. So. It's true. We've got it. We've got a Crunching Tackles reunion coming up. In which we're gonna watch Morbius,
1: and this is is true. (laughs) I somehow still haven't seen it, but the fact I think, since we talk about popular culture on this podcast, I think it's important to note that Morbius is currently the number two movie on Netflix right now. Like that's for such a terrible movie, that's an accomplishment.
0: It it is. I mean, I guess it's not surprising given that all publicity, is even bad publicity, creates a curiosity. So it makes sense that when it would stream for free, people would just be like, eh. I can waste two hours of my life, but a waste it is, most certainly.
1: Mm, absolutely.
0: John, a lot of times we don't like know in advance what our stories are going to be and just kind of come to us, you know, like things just yep. happen during the week. Mm-hmm. And we have three stories here, and we actually have four, but three of them all could be the main story. There were three oh, really, really big, big stories this week. Um, so we had to kind of divvy them up as, as best we could fit them in. And I guess let's start with the news out of the tennis. We've been talking about tennis a lot. Um, worth noting that since we recorded last, Carlos Alcaraz did win the U.S. Open, uh, as I expected he would, becoming the youngest uh, world number one ever in the men's, as well as being, I think, is he the youngest man to win the U.S. Open, I believe? Mm, um, I think he may be, he may be tied. Okay, I think he may
1: be the youngest man to win the U.S. Open, but not the youngest to win a Slam. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a correct
0: stat. Okay, well, I mean, either way, he's he's amazing, and I'll just be you if you want to talk about it at all. But for me, this is this is the first moment in my tennis viewing life where, if you ask me who the best tennis player in the world is, I'm not gonna say Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic. I think the best men's tennis player in the world right now is Carlos Alcaraz.
1: Hmm, I think that's interesting. I. I really enjoyed this tournament. I enjoyed seeing him kind of rise to the top. Like we knew he was going to be good given the way he was performing in tournaments throughout this season. Um, but it was tremendous seeing him on the court. This is the most, like this is probably cumulatively the most tennis I've ever watched in my life. Like the amount of tennis i watched in the last two weeks, I'm pretty sure it was more than the amount of tennis I'd watched in the previous 23 years of my life combined. So it was yeah. kind of a baptism by fire for me. Um, but I thought he he played really well. I was really blown away by his performance even in the final. He was struggling at one point and really kind of dragged himself back into it. And it's just really a remarkable talent. I'm, I hope that Djokovic plays the Australian Open just so we can see them play each other because I think that will be a fascinating matchup. We've seen him. I think he's definitely capable of beating Nadal. Like they're an interesting match for each other. But I think, I think Djokovic's mental work against his mental work
0: will be a fascinating battle. Yeah, you mentioned that Alcaraz had to drag himself through that final. One stat I do know for sure is that Carlos Alcaraz spent the most time on the court Mm -hmm. in a tournament for any player to win a U.S. Open. That was the longest time spent on the court over the course of the entire tournament by a U.S. Open champion. So it was really a a battle of attrition for him, and he came in on top, John. But somehow the U.S. Open is not even our tennis story this week. The tennis story of the week is the retirement of Roger Federer, something that I think a lot of us thought was or could be coming soon. I don't think many tennis fans had an expectation that we would see Roger Federer playing competitive tennis ever again. And um, that that turns out to be correct, at least from a cup, uh, from, a, from a Grand Slam and ATP Tour standpoint, he is going to play in the Labor Cup this week and then that will be a career for him so it's just really just again an opportunity for the the tennis community to come together and appreciate this man as we did in the past few last month and a half with Serena Williams and we get the chance to do that now with Roger Um, I think for me the most beautiful tennis player I've ever seen Mm -hmm. and not just because he's a very handsome man but because his his tennis is the most beautiful like he plays the most visually appealing tennis of I think anyone I've ever seen. Um, his, the, the book about him is appropriately titled The Master and I think that that's, that's very fitting for who he is and what he's done and um, he leaves behind a legacy that is incredible because for the longest time, John, he was the, the men's Grand Slam champion until he was overtaken by Nadal and then tied by Djokovic.
1: Yeah, I'm sad that I got into the sport a little bit too late to ever really appreciate. I think I guess he's been kind of injured on and off for the last three years, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of, even my consciousness of tennis was sort of as around the time he got, I guess started getting injuries. But everything I've heard has been remarkable and obviously the impact he's had on tennis is incredible. He, Serena paid tribute to him on her Instagram, I think it was yesterday or the day before. And you know, to have just two greats of the game paying tribute to each other is an incredible thing and I I loved Rafa's post as well kind of talking about Roger as his as his friend as well as like just a, a fierce competitor
0: did they play did they play doubles together at some point they is did, that, a thing that yeah. happened mm-hmm. toward the end uh, it was a, it was one of those like international like I think it was like one of the like the USA versus world like labor mm-hmm. Cup or, or things something like that and uh, they played doubles together and that that's one of the I think the memories that I will have of, of them but that was a cool moment. That's so fun. Do you do you have like a, I don't know, like a moment that stands
1: out to you for Roger's career that you feel like is like a defining, a defining win, or anything
0: like that? I think that there's a few. There's the so, Federer won twenty Grand Slams, but he only won a singular French Open, mm. and that was a huge hurdle for him because Rafa's dominance of the French Open is something that. Has been we've talked about it a lot. It's everyone understands that. But uh, Roger did beat Rafa in one French Open final. That was wow. to, to get the to get his career Grand Slam, having all four, and that was huge. I think that was a, a huge milestone for him. I think he would have been viewed differently if he had not done that. Um, he also had a really really great trilogy of finals in Wimbledon against Rafa. Um, he won the first two, and then Rafa won the third one. And in one of those, you know, Rafa had a, Nadal had a match point that uh, Federer saved with an incredible backhand in the line, went on to win that second uh, Grand Slam at Wimbledon over Rafa. Um, that was a huge moment. And then one that I remember really well as well is his, actually a loss in 2019 when he made, went really, really far in Wimbledon and lost to Djokovic in a grueling five set match uh, that just went on forever. And that was kind of, he was already battling injuries. He was aged, he was old at that point. I think he was 38 or 39 at that point. He's 41 as he retires now. But even in that loss, I thought that that was a really, really significant moment. Kind of like Serena's final U.S. Open, in a way, mm-hmm. where it was just cool to see that he still had that in him, where he, he could push Djokovic, and that was the best version of Djokovic to five sets in, the, in a grueling five hour plus match. That was a great display of uh, just his his determination and his willpower uh, as well. So those are kind of the three I think that mm. I, are most memorable to me.
1: I mean yeah his his reputation I think is definitely a sort of a tennis defining reputation I think for, for what the image like he's like the purest representation in my mind of what tennis is of like a classy gentleman who's You know, leaving his best on the court, but always doing it with grace and respect for his opponent. Um, I've never heard, I don't think I've heard a single negative thing ever said about Roger Federer at any point, ever. Um, Which is pretty remarkable for an athlete who's at the top of their game and considered one of the best of all time. You know, like that's most top tier athletes get all kinds of criticism for various things but he seems like just like a genuinely good guy and a great competitor as well as a fantastic tennis player and i think that's i think that's something to celebrate
0: yeah i think one of my favorite things about him particularly in comparison to nadal is the fact that like Two of the really defining moments for both of these guys is that they beat the other on their other's dominant surface. Mm-hmm. Um, the French Open, like I said, that Federer beat over Nadal, came after three straight losses in French Open finals. He had lost three straight right. French Open finals to Nadal and then finally broke through. And the same thing happened with Nadal um, in, that in the Wimbledon trilogy where he he finally breaks through against Federer after Federer's run of dominance, because Federer really dominated Wimbledon in a similar way that that, uh, Nadal dominated the French Open at least for for about half a decade there. Wimbledon is by far Federer's best tournament as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I I wish that I was a little bit older, honestly. John is kind of what I think. Right. Not just for you, it's part that you just weren't a big tennis fan, but even for me, like, I wasn't, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, that was not my prime tennis (laughs) viewing as an eight-year-old. Right. And so I just wish that I was a little bit older and could have had more time to live his journey in the moment instead of just kind of look back on it in retrospect through YouTube or other things.
1: Yeah, I definitely need to read. I've heard of that book. I definitely need to read that book at some point.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on uh, Federer, John, or do you want to pop on along?
1: I think we can move on. I think the only the only thing other thing I'm thinking is just it's it's interesting to see him officially retiring around the same time that Serena is most likely officially retiring Mm -hmm. um, as we've just had a tournament that very much is signaling sort of the end of an era even if he had decided to keep playing for a little bit longer like this tournament very much kind of rubber stamped the beginning of something new for tennis with Casper Root and Carlos Alcaraz um, two young stars up and coming stars who hadn't won a Grand Slam yet both in the final, beating it like duking it out with no member of the big three anywhere in sight. You know, that I think is a just a milestone. It's it's interesting to kind of I guess put that in context and just think about how like you mentioned all those finals of Rafa and Roger dueling it out literally in every tournament, you know, like that is a remarkable era of dominance that really is almost unprecedented in any sport for the length of time they were there. And I think that's always worth noting.
0: Yeah, it became a big three, right, with, with Djokovic, right. but it really was a big two for quite a while. Mm-hmm. It, before before Novak was who he was, these two were the two for a long time. Um, just really, really just a head-to-head kind of thing, and it was really cool. Um, John, we'll, we'll move on along. This next story is not something that has a whole lot of immediacy because this is actually mm-hmm. not going to go into effect for quite a while, but... It is a huge story nonetheless, and again, if this, if, the, if this wasn't such a busy sports week, could be the subject of an entire podcast, and that is the, the long-anticipated, long-debated change to the college football playoff format. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about all of the things going on in, in college football, from conference realignments to people wondering if the NCAA is still even the correct model to be having college football in, just a whole lot of discussion. And the NCAA kind of looks like they decided that they were going to try to, you know, regain their their grasp on college football with this realignment, um, this expansion from four teams to 12 teams for the playoffs, including six guaranteed spots for conference champions and then six at-large spots determined by the committee to determine a 12-team college playoff I assume this means that some version of the top four seeds will get a bye. I believe is how that's Mm going to work. Yep. Because I think a big part of this and part of why we'll talk about this is just like the number of games is going to be interesting here. Adding two more weeks to the season on an already grueling sport is going to be part of the conversation. So uh, the top four teams will have to play, I guess, three games to get to the championship. And then the other teams have to play four, I guess, Mm -hmm. to get to the championship. So that's a lot and we will talk about that but in the meantime john what do you think about this what's what's your first impression to it
1: my first impression is i think it's a great move for the future of college football i think when you look at college basketball right the the tournament the postseason tournament is like the highlight of college basketball uh very much so it is a massive money gain for vince it's a joy to watch we love march madness obviously i think uh with college football, what's interesting is, you know, as an outsider, I never really, like, understood why the college football playoff system worked with the way it did at first. It was like people would be voted in to a four-team playoff. Like, that didn't make sense to me. I was like, why aren't you, like, earning your way to the playoff rather than just, like, having it determined by schedule? So it was just a little bit of unintuitive, I guess, as someone, like, trying to figure out the sport. So I think it's interesting that, that they're, they're making this change I think for a couple reasons. I think the biggest reason that this change makes sense is, first of all, just adds a little bit of drama and jeopardy to the postseason rather than having, you know, like essentially three games, right, with really big teams all playing each other. And if a smaller team has like a shot at making it in, they're just going to get blown out most of the time, like we saw with Cincinnati last year. Like that was not an even competition. I think what this does, first of all, is it gives when you have six conference champions, right, you have the the power five and then you have the opportunity for a sixth conference from outside the, the power five to get into the playoff, which already is awesome. And then, you know, depending on how strong everyone else's schedules is, you have six other teams getting in that could be from power five or might not be, but most likely I'd assume they would be. Um, but I think it just it gives a little bit more parity. It's going to funnel a lot of money to conferences. Like, whichever school is the sixth team to get in gets the income from making it to the playoffs that they wouldn't have had the chance to receive before with just a 14 playoff. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think it's just a good in terms of a sporting perspective, like I was saying earlier. I think it's great in that it adds a much more meaningful postseason for college football. Um, And I think financially for smaller schools, it like smaller, quote unquote, you know, we're not talking like actually small schools here, obviously. But I think for schools that are not, you know, your Alabama's and your Clemson's, I think this does give football programs a chance to develop and have a meaningful postseason. That's not just like a random bowl game.
0: When you say smaller schools, are you thinking of non like are you thinking about the power five big schools or are we actually talking about? legitimate small mid majors here who, who are you thinking will benefit the most here
1: I think the, the I think the biggest teams that are gonna they're gonna are gonna benefit are power five schools obviously that are not Alabama and Clemson you know they will have a chance to get into the playoffs and continue to kind of build themselves to a point where maybe they can challenge Alabama and Clemson that being said I do think it's gonna help the mid-major schools to have to feel like they have a chance at accomplishing something you know if you have a school because you're going to have a guaranteed spot outside the power five that's going to get in every year and i think Mm -hmm. fighting for that is going to be a really interesting battle because i'm assuming it's going to be probably like whichever conference is ranked highest um like whichever conference champ is ranked
0: highest outside the power five gets in right right yeah that and that's one of my biggest questions is like you know, so this guarantees one, I guess, one spot right. to a non-Power 5 team. And my, my, one of my biggest questions is going to be, are there more more than that? Are there going to be two or three, or is it just going to be the one? Right. Um, like, will any will any mid-major non-Power 5 team get a get an at-large bid, I think is a huge question that I have. I think one of the things that you and I were talking about, Jim, when we talked about the Big 10 expansion and the SEC expansion, is the idea that when there were four teams... A two conference domination is possible. Like we talked about the idea of the of the four playoff teams being the champion and the runner up of the SEC versus the champion and the runner up of the Big mm-hmm. Ten. And that was not a like a, a crazy scenario. No, not that was at all. actually very possible. But what this is gonna do is definitely increase the parity. You know, the the it it gives not that they never lost all their meaning, but it does restore, I think, the meaning of the Pac-12, the ACC, the the uh, Big 12 as well. And in the sense, not that they were irrelevant all along, but in the sense that, you know, they still have a chance. They're going to guarantee one, and they could get two or three, mm-hmm. you know, teams. In a 12-team format. I, uh, You know, this could also open the door for four SEC teams, potentially, <laughs> or four Big 10 teams. So still, you know, a lot of things undetermined. I think what you mentioned about how it creates more excitement, you know, more games are more fun, the one and done for multiple rounds. I think that that's interesting. I know one of the hesitations was the idea that, you know, football's hard Mm -hmm. physically on the body, especially for these young guys, um, these college-age kids. So, like, in terms of adding two or three more games to each team's schedule, do you think that they're going to need to reduce the regular season? Uh, to accommodate this, or are they just going to expect these players to, to, to 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 go for it? And and then the second thing is, depending on how they do this in the schedule, are they going to come into conflict with Super Bowl? Or are they like, are they, they going to start the season sooner, and start the season in July, or are they going to end it later and actually like compete with the with the and uh, and NFL playoffs? Because normally mm-hmm. they end kind of right around the playoffs are getting into it. Um, you know, second week of July and then the Super Bowls in February. If they add three more weeks, they, they, you know, what would it look like to have the the college football national championship the day after the Super Bowl? I don't think that. I would be I don't think that would ideal. go very well. Yeah,
1: I think I, I think it's an interesting point. I I would wonder if they would shorten the schedule. Though the regular season, the, yeah, the regular season. I think that would be mm-hmm. the most intuitive shift because I think to a degree they're already playing a lot of games for college athletes you know like injuries do happen Mm -hmm. very regularly and it's a it's a real grind so that wouldn't obviously it's that's a financial loss for a lot of schools so i'm not sure that that would happen um but i do think that there would be a strong possibility that if people are concerned about playing too many games that that would be the shift that would happen
0: yeah i think it is a justifiable concern i guess right now isn't is it a 13 game regular season and then you'd have your conference championship, which mm-hmm. is the 14th game. And then right now, if you win the national championship, that's two more games. So that's 16 right now. You'd be looking at possibly 18 games for the national championship. Which is champion, an NFL playoff is, run. That's, a, yeah. that's an NFL season, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's an entire NFL season plus a playoff game. That's a lot. Right. Which, yeah. Especially for for people who are full-time students who, you know, quote-unquote, College is not college sports is not a full time job even though we all know it is. But like in the NFL, people dedicate their entire days, their entire weeks around getting their bodies mm-hmm. right. In theory, these athletes, these student athletes, have other responsibilities. In theory, so there's yeah, there's just a, a lot still to be considered. That was my the the number one reason why i thought that this would not happen was the additions of was the additional games so that's kind of where my mind first went when i saw this that this was going to happen that is
1: interesting yeah i'm i'm, I'm interested to see how they end up formatting it because obviously there's a lot still kind of not set in stone right now there's very little set in stone in reality other than the fact that we are expanding the playoffs so there's a lot yet to be determined um, but i think I think if they can find a way to protect the athletes well here, I do think it's a good change for the sport.
0: Yeah, and we'll have a couple years to talk about this before it gets implemented. Ultimately, I agree with you, particularly from the stance of conference realignment. I think this kind of mm-hmm. resets the idea that everyone's going to rush to the SEC and the Big Ten because that was the fear. I don't think that's an issue right. anymore, and I think that's good.
1: Well, because you may, you may even have schools that want to stay – in their conferences now, right? Oh, that's a I huge deal. I was thinking about U-
0: US, USC, you know. Mm-hmm. Or
1: even Clemson. If, you, if
0: you're if you if you're the definitively best team in, in one of the Power 5 conferences, that is an automatic bid to every single college football playoff, basically.
1: Well, think about it like the Champions League and soccer, mm-hmm. right? College football and soccer's ecosystems are sometimes more similar than we might think, right? Because you're dealing with a lot of conferences that are kind of like connected together through various... Confusing connections. Um, and there's a lot of money floating around, and overinflated teams with l- way too large salaries kind of run the game. You see teams like PSG and Bayern, right, that very much are very happy in the leagues where they're at because they win the title, make it to the Champions League, and then compete for the big titles every yeah. year. And if you have a school like Clemson, you know, if you have a consistent program, you run riot on the ACC automatic playoff bid every single
0: time that's a great point john can we talk a little bit more about the 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 joint ecosystems between uh american sports and world soccer
1: (laughs) yeah i just want to briefly talk about this we don't have to go too far into this but um the uh the british soccer verse uh twitter world has kind of been burning itself alive this week and it's honestly it's been really really funny because you know we're both we're both into the soccer world and i often play like British culture apologist role in a lot of places I go on this earth um, but but this week I've I've landed very firmly on the on the opposing Murica side which is which is an unusual situation for me to be in but it's a uh, it's intriguing
0: yeah describe this situation so the the let me let me set the the player the primary player here <laughs> is the American owner of Chelsea Todd Boley and in a larger right. sense, just the sense of the idea of an American takeover of English soccer, right? So we've got an American manager at Leeds. We've got an American star player at Chelsea. We've got American... He doesn't play, but... We've got American owners taking over clubs like Chelsea and Manchester United and other, uh, other teams. And, and Liverpool. Liverpool. And so yeah. there's this general sense of an American takeover Which, you know, can be a problem, but then that's exacerbated when Todd Boley does things like. So
1: Todd Boley, new owner of Chelsea, he purchased Chelsea this, I believe it was this summer after Russian owner Roman Abramovich was pushed out by the British government in essence. And so you have, you know, a new American owner comes in to save the day, right? And immediately starts within, you know, a hundred days starts causing chaos in the British soccer world, uh, very in a very kind of Ted Lasso kind of way. He, uh, he fires Thomas Tuchel, Chelsea's manager within that hundred day period. Um, who is widely considered one of the best coaches in the game at the yeah, moment. It's like
0: firing Mike Tomlin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You come in, you fire Mike Tomlin, you, you have a random British dude buys the Steelers out, fires Mike Tomlin immediately. You're like, what, right. what is going on here? Right. This is, this is baffling. Right. And you know, People were like, whatever, coaches get fired. It is what it is. However, British Twitter lost its mind when, while speaking at some kind of conference. Todd Boley says, you know, the British soccer world needs some changes. Um, you know, and I think we need some some new ideas. And there needs to be funding for the lower divisions in English soccer. And it's not coming from anywhere right now. So what I think we should do is create an all-star game for the english premier league just like we have in major league baseball and other american sports and have it a north versus south teams battle and when i tell you that the idea of an all-star game literally caused every english soccer fan to lose their minds i'm not exaggerating even a little bit gary neville the uh former manchester united player and sky sports analyst basically said that American owners are destroying the game of soccer and are essentially painted as a national crisis. Um, And there were many, many, many tweets like that. I don't have a whole lot to say about this other than just to point out, I guess it's just just a little funny to me to see people so resistant to change. I think the idea of an all-star game is a terrible idea because I think the all-star games in general are pretty terrible. And I'm like, why would you want more of these? We've talked about this on this podcast before and I'm like yeah, we they're have. fine but it's not like it's not like they actually bring that much in terms of benefit to viewers and it's a very foreign concept for Europeans like it's just a very commercial thing that feels very foreign to a soccer fan so I understand I understand that rage but at the same time people are freaking out about this like this is going to ruin the entire planet while Newcastle United and Manchester City and PSG are all owned by Gulf State Emirates who are funneling obscene amounts of money into the sport and ruining all competitive balance. And then we're complaining about American owners suggesting silly ideas. And I'm like, it may be a silly idea, but like, what's the big deal? I don't know.
0: Let me put on my tweed jacket, smoke my pipe, and defend the honor of the British people here for a moment. (laughs) John, you're you you're an American I'm you, American you, you I want you to put yourself in a in an American mind you are like America right oh I'm, I'm okay I'm you are the, the most now. toxic Tennessee Titans fan just just full-on America football American football all the way right right and then someone let's say his name is uh, Joris. Uh, Bronson, Joris Bronson <laughs> Joris Bronson, okay <laughs> from from England buys the Tennessee Titans and within his first hundred days says I think the NFL needs relegation and promotion I think we need to bring some of the British, British <laughs> ideas like relegation and promotion you know, Top, if, you, if you're bad in the NFL you're just right down to the minor leagues and then we're just, you know if you were, like, how would you feel about that? And the answer I'd be is, upset. you'd be pretty upset. <laughs> and the reason why is because I think that as fans, we expect the people who run our sports to at least understand the ethos of that sport. Right. The problem is not just that Todd Bowley is an American, the problem is that he clearly doesn't understand what makes European soccer European soccer. Right. He irrationally fires the coach who won a Champions League a year and a, a, year and a half ago considered one of the three best managers on this planet of earth in part because he wants his american player to get more playing time and the european and english soccer fans don't actually think he's that good of a player and, and deserves that playing time and then then he says well let's bring this american concept immediately into this sport that most british soccer fans don't want and so it's it's kind of like a compounding effect of just the feeling that this guy just doesn't get our like what is this guy doing in our sport? It's not just that he's a foreigner, it's that he seemingly has no clue what he's doing. And to say that he is, you know, the most dangerous thing to European soccer, I don't agree with that. That's obviously not true. But there I think that the reaction here is different from the Saudi Arabian takeover of Newcastle because it's actually trying, it's not just who owns the club, but it's actually trying to change the the actual sport itself. For whatever you want to say about the Saudi Arabian government, Newcastle is actually being run very well. Mm -hmm. They've made smart transfer decisions, they've hired a great manager, all of the actual football decisions have been excellent. And Newcastle is a better club than they were under the previous ownership. And in this case, it's kind of the idea that this American owner just doesn't know what he's doing as a football person. I think is part of the problem. I
1: think that's very true. I don't think he I don't think he actually has a full handle on how to run the club and it seems like he wants to have way too much influence on how the club is run as an owner, which as someone who doesn't know how the sport operates is kind of strange. Um I think my my main point here, I obviously agree the idea of having an All-Star game like the MLB has to me is like what? Well, there's no need for that yeah, it's just But at the same idea. I think it's just not a good idea, but I think I think the extreme nature of the reaction Is so wildly overblown and points to a resistance to change that's gonna have to happen in the sport of soccer to Deal with all the changes that are happening in soccer right now, right? So much money is being pumped into the game, right and changes are gonna come And I don't think it's bad to be open-minded about ideas in general to help keep the sport evolving positively rather than negatively. I think that's my my main point here is I think think we could all do with being a little less blinkered.
0: That's fair enough. I think to summarize, bad statement and then bad overreaction.
1: Yep. Okay. So yes, a little bit, a little bit, I'm off my high horse now and at least pretending my pretending to defend an American owner, which is an unusual thing for me, but here I am.
0: John, pro-billionaire Americans. That's the
1: headline. And now, now we're going to do the opposite.
0: Yeah, so I don't really know how to transition from what are really just sports stories to a much more serious topic, but here we go. The big story this week is I guess, I think it came as a surprise to me just because this was a headline, but it was so long ago that I kind of forgot that this thing was even in limbo and that is the independent investigation the NBA commissioned into the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury's owner, Robert Sarver. Uh, The Phoenix Suns, the NBA team, the Phoenix Mercury, the WNBA team, their owner was accused of some racist and sexist behavior in 2021. And in response, there was a independent commission. And we talked about that at the time. But then I think I kind of just forgot this was going on. A bunch of other things came up. The Phoenix Mercury had to do with Brittany Griner. There was a bunch of other things going on. And I just We've forgot been about a full that. year. Hasn't yeah, it? right. Yeah. yeah. And this week, we actually got the report from this investigation it was 36 pages and we got a punishment handed down by adam silver the commissioner of the nba robert sarver has been suspended for an entire year from the team and he has been fined 10 million dollars which i believe is the most severe fine in like american sports history Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty it's pretty severe um it's a very very strong punishment and we can talk about the actual findings of the report, the announcement by Silver, and then kind of the reaction around the basketball and and other sporting world. So to start out, John, I read as much of this report as I could um, mm-hmm. in the time that I had, and I guess the two main components were racist behavior and sexist behavior there's going to be some nuance we're going to talk about as well in regard to the extent of the racist behavior but to start off with um what was your first impressions when you saw these headlines and and looked through this report
1: yeah i would say when i read the uh, the espn story when it broke last year espn had already done a solid amount of reporting Uh, on this story that was then backed up pretty much at least from what I've read of the stories about the report um, that's been backed up pretty well by that uh, I think uh, I guess what a lot of what this report and the stories kind of have detailed and what employees from the organization who have both who are both there and who have left details just a incredibly toxic workplace environment that Sarver has created in his 18 years at the Suns he has a incredibly long history detailed within this report and from numerous eyewitnesses of just incredibly inappropriate workplace interactions with people you know it's not like at least as far as we know you know he he hasn't been he's not being accused here of like direct like sexual assault or harassment or any of those kind of things right it's it's very much sort of Falling in the toxic workplace, I guess category of interactions of making people feel really uncomfortable You know talking about sexual things and sort of just you know saying crazy stuff to women Um, I I Think there was a couple instances documented of Him just making really inappropriate like comments about women being pregnant um, Mm -hmm. And a variety of things like that kind of referring to him, quote-unquote, like, owning uh, women workers who worked for the team, making black players and coaches on the team feel uncomfortable with a variety of racist comments that he would then with both the racist and the sexual comments kind of just play off as him just kind of, like, joking but at the same time having a really terrible temper and basically blowing up in people's faces if people confronted him about next to anything. Um, He's even documented eyewitnesses talk about him basically marching into team meetings at halftime and at various points during practices and basically like interrupting the coaches and telling them how to do their job and screaming at them and all this just like really 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 bad behavior and things as we're going to get into that anyone in any organization would be fired over if you're not the owner of the organization Um, and I think it's just It's just bad behavior across the whole, you know, this is not like a Deshaun Watson situation. It's a very different kind of circumstance, Mm -hmm. but still incredibly fireable behavior. I don't know, what did you think?
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of my thoughts on this are gonna kind of be in direct contrast and comparison with the uh, Donald Sterling case, and that's something that Adam Silver spoke a lot about in his press conference, were the direct comparisons between those two stories. Um, Basically, the, the noticeable things in the report was that he was reported to have used uh, the N-word five times, at least in conversation at mm-hmm. the workplace, that he would make inappropriate comments about sex or sexual orientation. And like he mentioned, just beyond like racism and sexism, just general toxicity, like like you said, screaming, yelling, uh, playing things off as jokes, um, Just just not a pleasant environment to be in. Um and that led I, I, I think all of these kind of angles kind of blend together the reaction with the actual report and the Adam Silver element because in in the backdrop of this is the fact that Donald that Adam Silver has removed an owner from his ownership as a result of racist comments. We've talked about that a lot. We've talked about what brought that about. And so as fans of the NBA, as as players in the NBA are looking at the situation and reading this report we're seeing all of these similarities between these two cases and then we're seeing two different outcomes um, two different punishments two different results and that's led to a lot of questions Adam Silver tried in his press conference to kind of delineate the reasoning and he mentioned several things that I found fascinating one was that he said that according to the reports Robert Sarver was not using the n-word in a bigoted or derogatory manner he was using it to quote other people basically Mm -hmm. where if he was quoting someone who said the word he would say the word and we've we've you know this has come up in sports before Um, there was a there was a year when I was in college when like every college athletes old tweets were being looked at basically and there Mm -hmm. was a someone had like you know typed out the n-word when quoting a rap lyric and it was a white person who did that and got into a much trouble about it so it's not like using the word to intentionally you know act hate and hatred toward a black person but it was just using a word that is not culturally appropriate for you to use even in a quotation i guess i don't i don't know exactly how to structure this conversation i but again the donald sterling thing just keeps coming to mind for me john so in terms of like did you kind of see what uh silver said in terms of why he didn't why he didn't give the same punishment as donald sterling
1: hmm. So so just for a little bit of background, if you don't know the full context of the Sterling situation, so he was the owner of the Clippers um, and he I guess two things are important to note right off the bat. First of all, Silver, which was what I was reading about, Silver can't actually fire an owner. And he said that as a commissioner. And he said that that was part of his kind of his his rationale that he gave in the press conference. So he didn't remove Donald Sterling either. He just suspended him permanently from the NBA. But he couldn't force him to sell his team. That's right. Uh, and he can't force Sarver to sell his team either. That has to be done by uh, by a majority of the NBA owners. Mm-hmm. I think like 24 votes, something like that. Yeah. Um, so that is something that ultimately comes down to other league owners and not adam silver but adam silver did take the decision to permanently suspend donald sterling which he did not with sarver obviously sterling was suspended um he had a long history of racist statements but they had direct audio of him i believe talking to his girlfriend um basically saying that she shouldn't appear in public uh with black men yes and it was just direct proof of numerous racist statements that were proven to be donald sterling and and he had a reputation
0: for like for decades Literally, this is one of the most like disliked people in los angeles for literally Mm -hmm. since the 80s
1: and so so with direct documentation it was not a difficult situation the owners immediately banded around silver and said yep we're banning this guy sell your team um with sarver it's You know, Adam Silver gave the press conference announcing and then defending his decision to suspend him for just a year, which is obviously not an indefinite NBA suspension, unlike Sterling. Uh, And the backlash to that press conference was very large. We'll just say that. Um, LeBron James, uh, Chris Paul, uh, numerous other people, I think the head of the NBA Players Association, Basically, the minority owner
0: of the Suns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, the second largest shareholder of the Suns behind Robert Cyber, uh wrote a letter asking him to step down and sell his ownership in the team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a
1: lot of backlash basically saying
0: Sarver doesn't
1: deserve to have this role anymore. Silver, obviously, as he said, can't force him out of the league entirely.
0: He can remove but, him from
1: management. Is Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So... I don't know. I think what's interesting here, like you said, kind of comparing the two and then looking at the reaction, LeBron was very much in support of Sterling being removed and said, good on you, Silver, well done, and and is now not happy that the same thing hasn't been done to Sarver. Yeah. Basically, Silver's, Silver's kind of rationale for doing what he did was that he doesn't think the intent was the same in a lot of the actions and that there's kind of a track record of positive things along with the negative, which a lot of people found to be a very problematic rationale for while saying that something was basically heinous and indefensible, also saying that it wasn't as bad and as indefensible as what Sterling did was logic that people have not really found acceptable. I don't I I feel like I kind of like see what he's saying, though, at the same time.
0: Yeah, a lot of what Silver said had to do with, like, Robert Sarver's growth and the amount of time that this has been going on. Like, So, like, he he said that, you know, Robert Sarver took accountability. He's been – he's he's shown contrition. And also that a lot of these things happened in the past and that he's a – he's not the person he was. He's been on his own evolution and growth and all that. And that's certainly true. He's been an owner for 18 years. A lot of these accusations stem back five, six, seven years Um in the past. And he, you know, according to reports, there, there, there are positive interactions with him and, and this sense that he has learned from his mistakes and is trying to be different and that he has taken accountability for his actions. All of those things are things that were not the case with Donald Sterling. He showed mm-hmm. no contrition. He didn't think he did anything wrong. And he was certainly not interested in changing his behavior in any way. No. Yeah. So I
1: think what's interesting about Sarver is he's like kind of admitted to his actions and has put out some statements that show contrition and also completely denied the accusations at other times. I feel like I think at this point he's kind of admitted to Mm -hmm. most of what's in the report at Mm -hmm. this point, which was not when the when the ESPN article first came out, he basically said none of this is true. But he has kind of revised that. I think to a degree that does play into the punishment. I think, but
0: should it? I guess is the question that LeBron James is asking, because you know it's something that we talked about a lot with Deshaun Watson. We kept them bringing, you know, he's not apologetic, he's not changing, he doesn't care, he's not showing contrition. And so on the one hand, we have this, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple instances of bad behavior, and then this, you know, a half-hearted or a whole attempt at contrition. I can't judge Sarver's motives, but certainly the sense that he. Is aware that his behavior was wrong and has a desire to change, and that's kind of like we talked about with 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 um, Deshaun Watson. It's kind of like the first thing that we want to see from someone in this kind of situation. Hmm.
1: I mean, as I said, I this is a completely different situation from Deshaun Watson, though. Like, I don't right. think whether he's con- shows contrition or not, I don't think Deshaun Watson should ever play in the league again. Right. That's my personal state. Right. I don't care if he apologizes. He can mm-hmm. apologize and become a better person outside the NFL. Hmm. You know, I think Sarver. You know has basically run the Suns like an inappropriate boys club And made a lot of people uncomfortable and a lot of reporters asked silver, you know What's the difference between Sarver and any other employee of the NBA organization? You know anyone at the Suns who behaved like that or a journalist Who behaved like that would have been fired immediately, you know, you can't behave in that manner in the workplace And Silver's defense was kind of like, I think what Silver was sort of trying to say, and then they, the NBA backtracked it on Twitter later, but Silver kind of seemed to be hinting at basically saying, well, you know, he's an owner, so he's sort of, because he owns the entire organization to a degree, he's like outside the rules a little bit. It seemed like he was trying to say, and then then the NBA kind of put out on Twitter just said like just to clarify we don't mean that he's actually outside the standards of morality for the NBA but he was kind of dan he kind of danced around the question a little bit i don't know if you watched the yeah, video
0: yeah not that i don't i don't think he was saying that he was outside the standard but he was definitely saying that like there isn't he doesn't have a an overseer right like 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 if 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 i do something wrong at my job i know who's going to fire me right mm-hmm. and it's it's my boss like Sarver doesn't have a boss he right, has, it's just the other league owners. right yeah it's just it's just his peers and a majority of them could could do this thing but like like he said silver doesn't have the power to do it on his own um, and so the idea is just that like w- there isn't really a hierarchy to mandate owners behavior in the same way that you can mandate everyone else's behavior I feel
1: like almost I guess part of why I feel like I again everything in this report is bad, right? This is not a good look for Sarver. A lot of, most of the instances are earlier in his career, but there are some that have are still relatively recent, you know, so there's still a track record. He is not a completely changed man, regardless of what Silver says. I think what Silver is running up against though, here is my, my guess, personally, is what is the standard of behavior that he is willing to crack down on an owner this like donald issue. sterling this is the you issue. know this is the real issue here right donald sterling crossed that line like indisputably he mm-hmm. had indisputable evidence clearly not only racist intent but racist actions you know both of those together and he said this is unacceptable and a completely inappropriate look for the league a lot of what at least in my view you know and if someone else has a different opinion i'm happy to hear them out A lot of this Sarver report is basically a slew of HR violations, right? Mm -hmm. That are really quite bad. Yeah. But are they, they don't seem to be over Silver's line for pushing the nuclear button and basically taking a stance against the owners and getting like daring them to defy him basically. Mm Mm-hmm and i don't know if that's the way it should be but i also like he he said i don't want to draw a firm line basically to allow people to like kind of toe the line of what kind of behavior is allowable before i take this step right and i just i I just don't know what i understand his dilemma here like i understand that people are mad but i also do wonder like if you look if you investigated most of these organizations I don't think you would find every owner is like Sarver, but I do think you would find a lot of bad behavior in these organizations at every step, because that's just how companies are. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I just don't know what, I don't, I don't know what standard it should be. And I don't, I honestly don't know that I can conclusively say, yes, this is over the line of the nuclear button.
0: I don't think Sarver's behavior is that dissimilar to that of someone like uh, John Gruden. Um, mm-hmm. one of the differences is that John Gruden had a boss who could fire him. Right, and, right. And Robert Sarver doesn't. But but you do speak to the point, which, like, when if Adam Silver is going to think of, you know, sus, a permanent suspension as a nuclear option, then what level reaches to that? With Sterling, it was blatantly hateful it was on tape it was obvious this is a little bit more nuanced 36 page report you know mixed signals on his intentions mixed signals on how people felt about him a little bit more nuanced but the idea that I've been grappling with John is is what you said too where if you investigated every team which could you find something like this and what I was thinking about is like why is this not a surprise to me and it just—it yeah, no, just feels like the standard for ownership is just so low, <laughs> where it feels like you could investigate any uh, any American sports owner, and you would find this kind of stuff. Any of them, mm-hmm. it just—it just seems like this is just like it's like a prerequisite for ownership of a team is like light racism and sexism. It's just like the the minimum standard for, for ownership and it's wild mm-hmm. but it speaks so much to why representation and ownership matter so much and that's something that we're still so far from right like mm-hmm. there's that's true that's a good point in terms of like the nfl where it's pretty much all white men the nba is similar you've got you know michael jordan basically and and the idea that more people of color and more female people in ownership stakes is really what's what it's going to take to change this culture mm-hmm. because yep. as long as as long as the demographic of sports owner are 50 plus year old white men there's going to be the behavior of 50 plus year old white men not all white men but certainly enough in this enough bad apples to kind of spoil the whole bunch as it as it is like mm-hmm. there's a not there's enough bad behavior here, whether it's blatant or just not sensitive enough to the times and and the moment that we're living in, that whenever there's an investigation of an owner, I kind of just assume the guilt and I assume that this is kind of just par for the course in the corporate world that is American professional sports.
1: Yeah, I mean, we know like professional sports, the locker room is a crazy place, right? The professional sports world Is a place where a lot of stuff happens that is not the cleanest right you look at any sports documentary you know or any show about the sports world right and you see behind the scenes stuff right a lot of it's doctored out but you know there's still you know even any high school football locker room right contains a lot of bad behavior right that if you behaved like that in a corporate setting you would be fired immediately And so because of the way sports is, it allows a lot of that behavior that's not acceptable, right? And it's just perceived as okay because of that, like, basically the boys club attitude that a lot of women within the sports world have referred to as incredibly toxic, right? When we talked about the Washington football team uh, report or lack thereof by the NFL, you know, the, the, the stories that reporters told about it, we're constantly talking about that, about this, just this feeling that because there's all these dudes working in the sports world they just view it as okay to mistreat women right and you know i think that's a great point that you said like that culture does not shift until you have enough people within the sports world who are willing to put their foot down right and take steps to stop the toxic people in that culture and also encourage other people to enter the culture and help change it.
0: Yeah, and it has to be someone who's an equal. Mm-hmm. It's not like representation from a coaching level or from a front office level or like just like an employee. Like there's still a power dynamic where people mm-hmm. don't feel like they can call out an owner. The reality is it takes an owner to call out an owner. And so right. the representation needs to be in that owner's room. Because that's where the accountability needs to be. Someone, mm-hmm. someone who has zero risk of being fired or putting their career in the line, needs to be the person who can stand up to the owner and say, "Hey, this is wrong." And that that really is just going to happen from the commissioner and from other owners. Um, and so that's why Michael Jordan's investment in sports is so important. That's why other people's investment in sports is so important. And that's why we just need, frankly, need more of it. So that's that's kind of mm-hmm. what I think on that.
1: I agree. I think I think that's a good, you know, regardless of what ends up happening over this next year, some are calling for once the year suspension is over for Silver to reconsider and make it worse. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Maybe in this next year, the public pressure will get so big on Robert Sarver that he'll feel the need to sell his team. You know, that's kind of what the culture wants right now, it seems, in the sports media world. We'll see if that actually happens. Uh, or if the media storm dies down. But for now, that's kind of the force of public opinion and seems like some of the players, you know, it's worth noting that not even all the players on his team have spoken against him. But, but you do have prominent voices in the league speaking against him, and it'll be interesting to see kind of where the
0: weight of all those
1: different things uh,
0: shifts yeah we've gone longer on this topic than i think we intended to or not this topic mm-hmm. but the whole podcast so far and we still have one more topic to go but i I'd, I'd, one more thing on that point though is just to say that i think my last comparison to the sterling case is that one of the things that broke the tide in the sterling incident is the protest by the players um, mm-hmm. in the playoffs they came out they were wearing their clippers jerseys inside out so that the clippers logo wasn't showing there was there was a universal act of protest by the players that was a huge part in leading to his suspension. So um it'll be interesting to see, like you said in this next year what, what a player led movement could do possibly to change this. Uh whether it's pressure on Sarver to sell or pressure on Silver to to take a take a draster dra- more drastic measure in terms of punishment. So Yeah. Yeah, I think I think uh we'll see we'll continue to monitor this story obviously in the next year and, you know, a year from now we'll see if anything anything more severe happens. So Mm-hmm. John, I, we, we are already at an hour, but I know we do want to talk a little Price. bit about right. The Rings of Power because I stayed up till one just thirty, just so that we could talk about it today. <laughs> um, this is an episode that I really don't have a whole lot to say about, honestly. Um, mm. it, was, it felt like very much a setup episode. We're talking about Amazon Prime, The Rings of Power, or The Rings prequel show. If you don't want any spoilers, get on out of here. But um, the idea is just that this episode kind of felt like it was doing a lot of lore building. It was doing a lot of... Mm-hmm. Set up for the conflict. It was getting the Numenorians involved in the war. Um, there was there were a couple like pretty long speeches or conversations that were just dumping a bunch of names and lore and content onto our our, our viewing microchips just to make sure that we have everything mm-hmm. downloaded. Um, but in terms of like action, there wasn't a whole lot. It certainly felt much slower paced than Episode Three, which to me is still right. the highlight of the season so far. Is that third episode?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I I I enjoyed this episode honestly. I, I didn't feel like my attention was wavering. I wanted it to keep going. Like, Always. I, like I yeah like I I finished the episode and I was like mm, like mm, I I do want more of that. Um, I really enjoyed. I was telling you before we started the the scene where the orcs are chasing. Um, is his name? A reindeer. A Yeah. A Yeah. I th- and I'm, Theo. I'm, I'm keeping up with the name slowly where he's chasing where the orcs are chasing a through the forest Rondir and theo and it kind of like goes into slow motion and the lighting changes and like the orcs are like charging through the woods and arrows are flying and it just felt very peter jackson and i appreciate it i, f- I i'm sure he was intentional but it felt very much kind of an om- homage to earlier lord of the rings uh orc chases which which i appreciate it um Galadriel still frustrates me, I think is one of my other main takeaways from this show. I, I appreciate the way that she's being acted. And you and I also talked about how she kind of, she, she had a Cate Blanchett moment. I don't know if you want to talk about that. But I felt her, I felt the the previous, her, her kind of summoning Lord of the Rings Galadriel in that moment in
0: Numenor. Yeah. She, well she's the weirdest Lord of the Rings character in the movie trilogy, right? Oh by far. Because she's in one scene and she like pretends to be nice to them and then kind of like turns into this like rage goddess for like a second and like scares Frodo and like the camp. she like looks really big in the picture and she like gives this like big booming speech about if she had the ring and it was very terrifying, right? It's one of the scariest parts of Lord of the Rings is and Absolutely. so she's, I was terrified of it as a child. Yeah, she's not an approachable character in the movies. And no, not at in all. the same sense she doesn't feel like an approachable character in the show, which is mm-hmm. actually like good character work from the show to be consistent with the books and with the movie. But in terms of like our primary uh, heroine not being a very likable or approachable character certainly creates some story challenges even if it is very lore consistent.
1: Yeah, I think also she just, I'm interested to see kind of where the connection draws, because I hadn't even thought about that, but you you mentioning that, that scene in Lord of the Rings, like Galadriel in the movies is very strange. Yeah. She's weird. And this Galadriel doesn't, that's the only thing that's, that feels different, is like this Galadriel is headstrong and stubborn, but doesn't seem weird. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to see if they're going to bring that in because this 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 just does feel in that sense like a different Galadriel than we're used to, in terms of her role in the story.
0: Yeah, I think the similarity is that I just feel like we're as an audience we're kind of at arm's length from her. I certainly mm-hmm. felt that way in the trilogy. I think is she is he in, is she in the uh, is it the end of Fellowship that she's in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 The first that. movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she also feels kind of like at arm's length in this show. Like, don't really understand a whole lot about her. Don't really like understand her motivations, but not in an emotional way. She's just very like intellectual, I guess. She's very cut and dry. Yeah. Yeah. On yeah. the other
1: hand, I appreciated Elrond and Durin. Um They're they're kind of hitting the most consistent emotional beats for me. Um, it's going to be back their,
0: Durin after episode three.
1: I know uh, it's their friendship is hitting the most. Consistent. Them in the Harfoots occasionally, but Elrond and Durin for me are starting to shape up as like, okay, I'm getting at least some kind of warmth here. You know, like Elrond's little speech about his father, and then Durin's like, oh yeah, maybe I should go apologize to my dad. You know, and then like it was a good, it was a good show moment. You know, I want more of that. I think is
0: mm-hmm.
1: was my takeaway in Episode Three, and even more, just getting even a little taste of it was more of my takeaway in Episode Four. Um, Arondir isn't that character and Galadriel is not that character. And so we're kind of left, at, you know, I think door and Elendil are going to give us some of that as well, is very much the vibe I'm getting. But I also think Elrond and Durin are going to be important to that, to the emotional development of the story.
0: Yeah, and I think just from a story element, um, the 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 character design in the orcs is awesome. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a really, really great shot where they're all just, like, standing above Arendir when he's, like, on the ground, and it's just very, very cool. And then... I thought that the scene with uh, Adar when he's talking to Aaron Deer was also very well acted. I don't know how, mm. I don't know if is gonna be like the the main bad of the season. It certainly seems that way, but I thought he was really, really good. There was another, another um, moment with a lot of like lore dumping in it, but effective and well acted and I, I was tracking with, with what he was doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just, I, I, we talked about this, I talked about this like after watching the first two, but the idea that like sometimes a show just has some sort of magic to it. And this one feels like it has the magic. I haven't exactly like put my finger on exactly how to like describe it, but it just seems like it's doing exactly what it should be doing at all the times. Like it just, it just seems like it's not missing. Everything feels really intentional, nothing feels haphazard, everything feels purposeful. Um, it's just an incredibly well-crafted television show, which I think when you're comparing it to other television shows happening in the world in the last year, stands out. Um, mm-hmm. this, this this week, John, by the time we do our next podcast, this is kind of like the Chad quadruple. I will be doing four <laughs> simultaneous <laughs> fandom shows all at one time. That's insane. That's um, so many. Which is a lot. It's a lot. But you know, all of these things are happening all at once. And this one just feels like so far it is the most well thought out and the most purposeful in its, in its, in its existence, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good that's a good way to put it. I I want, I'm still looking for more warmth. It feels to me like a well put together show. It's like it feels this show feels to me right now like a really technically good player that doesn't quite have the heart with him yet.
0: I'm trying to think of who that is.
1: This I, is don't the, um, I
0: don't know who it not the, it's not the Kyrie Irving of shows. I wouldn't do that to Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't compare it to Kyrie Irving. Um, I believe <laughs> yeah, the earth is round. Be, Isn't Middle Earth round? That'd be brutal. I think
1: I, th- I think I or think is it flat. Is. <laughs> I honestly don't know. That's a good I don't point. Know it's anyway. our, it's technically our earth, so it is round. Okay, good. Um, good. good. <laughs> I mean, he's like it's it's just like it's the it's not even the Kevin De cuz Ke- it is kind of it's the Manchester City of of shows.
0: Technically it's got brilliant, tons of but has no heart.
1: Yeah, it's got tons of money investment. It gets everything right. You know, it wins the awards, but it's it's like you don't you don't quite feel the like the love of the magic. The magic that's is fair. there. Uh, and I want I want it to be a Liverpool. I want it to have magic, but I also want to be swept off my feet uh, screaming into the abyss.
0: Yeah, that's definitely I think of and we really do need to wrap up this podcast at some point we do, yes. but we do, this do. that is what i what i've heard kind of the surveys i've done of friends that has been the the, the primary uh issue i think that mm-hmm. i've heard is this idea of it's just not like it doesn't have any heart it yeah. kind of is like just an art piece of jeff bezos's money <laughs> and i I, don't, I certainly don't feel that way but that is the the most common frustration um, yeah I think it. I think it is like it's surprisingly funny. Like Durin mm-hmm. and Elrond aren't telling jokes, but they're really funny. Um, oh, absolutely. And that I don't. And like, it's not the kind of like ha ha funny. That's you get get a bunch of comedy writers. It's actually like very very well thought out. Just situations and moments and lines that just are funny without being ha ha. And it's just like oh yeah, I, I see what you're doing there, and it just works. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's well done.
0: I like like, I th- like the one of the lines was like, uh, you know, like Galadriel, this is my last thought, but like Galadriel gets put in prison um, next to Halbrind and he says, so what, what got you in here? To, uh, tavern riot? And he, she just goes, sedition. <laughs> and it just, the scene was <laughs> cut. And it's like that may or may not be trying to be funny, but it's just so well written and so well acted that it just like, it works. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. actually really great. But anyway. I
1: agree. Good stuff. We'll let you guys go.
0: We've yeah, this has been long. We will be back next week with a podcast that will be at least 15 minutes shorter (laughs) than this one. (laughs) Um, With that said, I hope that you all continue to be well and be safe. And uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys. (laughs)